0: There really is a prehistory here. The 80s movies in particular, like Rocky IV and uh, Red Dawn and stuff, you, you you hear them referenced just constantly. I mean, I kind of went with the ones that I feel I hear get referenced the most. I mean, Rocky IV in particular, I feel, is just such a generational touchstone for how, how people imagine the Soviet Union. I mean, the only problem is what they did is kind of boring to show on screen, right? Like-
1: Howdy, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy, the show where yours truly talks to the movers and shakers in Russia-focused journalism and academia. Interviews deal with views on trending news stories, the overarching themes of Russia-watching, and the ins and outs of life as a professional in this field. Today's guest is David Kleon, a writer in Brooklyn, whose work has appeared in The Nation, The New York Times, The Guardian, BuzzFeed, Baffler, and many other publications. In mid-September, the website Coda published a story by David titled Russia, Hollywood's Mirror, where he examines Russia tropes in American movies over the past six decades. Here's the opening of that article. If Russians didn't exist, Hollywood would have to invent them. In a sense... Hollywood has. So what did David and I talk about in this interview? We went through a whole laundry list of American movies about Russia, focusing on favorites like Rocky IV, Red Heat, Goldeneye, and others. David told me what kind of Hollywood movies he'd like to see more of, and we talked at length about how popular entertainment both feeds off and informs perceptions when it comes to how Russians and Americans think about each other. That and more in the interview. Now here it is. How did you how did you come to write this story? Because it's when I first when I just saw like the headline and the, and the little subheader, I, the first thought I had was like I can't believe it's taken this long for me to see someone write this because it seems like such an obvious, wonderful thing. And I'm curious, what was the inspiration?
0: Well, I wish I could claim personal credit for the idea, but it, it was Ilan uh, Greenberg reached out to me and thought that this would be good. And it was a very kind of broad assignment. I mean, when he originally proposed it, the three things he wanted me to watch were um, The Americans, which I had only seen maybe two or three episodes of, and The Death of Stalin, which I had just seen at the time, uh, and um, Red Sparrow, which, confession, I have still not seen. And I don't really say anything about it in the piece other than that it bombed and did not get good reviews. But, But as he and I discussed it we thought that you know I I suggested that it might be fun to go back in the history more I mean I think he initially his idea had been more that I would kind of survey the the very recent landscape and those were the three that he suggested and then I had this thought that there really is a prehistory here the 80s movies in particular like Rocky IV and uh, Red Dawn and stuff you 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 hear them referenced just constantly and so as the as it kind of evolved i thought we're we're really reckoning with a with a long legacy of trying to of trying to represent uh the russians and it kind of informs how people talk about them on tv and how politicians talk about them and and so i figured i would just dig into that is the central
1: idea of your article is it fair to sum up as hollywood reflects the sort of trending Political ideas about Russia and sort of the American mainstream, or is there? Do you need more nuance in that summary, or is that is that a sort of fair summation?
0: I think that's a sort of starting point. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I make a lot of other points along the way, but that's the kind of overarching thing that Hollywood uh, reflects, kind of major shifts in the political trends. You know, it's it's funny. I didn't. I mean, I would never pretend this was comprehensive and there were only so many movies or TV shows I could watch or review. Uh, And in some cases, these were things I saw as a kid that I just kind of, you know, I I, I gave my, you know, like I didn't rewatch GoldenEye for this. I just watched a few scenes and kind of read some stuff, but it's pretty embedded in me, stuff like that. But I, I guess I thought that, there are eras like um, the 70s, for instance, when there weren't that many obvious movies made in that period. Uh, I mean, uh, there are probably some that escaped me. but I, And I just kind of skip over it in the text. But I kind of felt like maybe, you know, because I had something to say about Russia, uh, representations of Russia in the 60s and representations of Russia in the 80s, but I kind of felt like in the 70s, People were more concerned with uh, kind of the dark side of the American experiment, and and it was you know the period of détente. So I, I feel like the Cold War wasn't so much on everyone's mind in that decade, in the way that it you know in the '60s you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and and in the you know kind of kicking off the decade, and and you were coming off the McCarthy era, and in the '80s you had Reaganism, and that so informs, I think, the the way that people were talking about Russia in those eras. And likewise, I've thought—I mean, I've, I've followed your work for a while, and I, I know you're obviously a Russian nerd, and so am I, and so are, you know, a bunch of people we, we follow. But I've always felt like we're—Russian nerds of our generation are kind of the exception, and we're very used to hearing people— uh, Americans mainly say that you know make make their stupid jokes about from Russia with love or or whatever it is we've we've heard that all a million times but i think that the the truth is when we were, how old are you? I, I'll be 36 later this year. <laughs> okay, and I'm 34, so we're about the same age. Yeah. And when we when we were in college, when we were in our 20s, I really feel like Russia was not that big a deal. Like, it was kind of on the outs. Yeah. People cared about the Middle East. They cared about China. Sure. So, you know, in 2016, when everyone started talking about Russian interference, a lot of people were like, oh, this is the kind of age-old obsession with Russia and i never quite saw it that way because to me it was like oh people are finally paying attention again but at the same time like you know when when they do start paying attention of course they start falling back on all these old stereotypes so yeah
1: but it is it's it's I, what i really liked about the way that you you broke down the the decades Is that you've got? It's not just that, like, oh, there was a movie about Russia this year. It's that there are these like themes that sort of emerge for a a period of years, and and like they do seem to reflect the kind of politics that's happening in the background of the United States. Like you have the you've got the kind of humor of the '60s and the sort of lightheartedness after the you know I mean even the doctor even Doctor Strangelove is a is a comedy, right? It's a very 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 dark comedy, but but uh there's this sort of like spirit of hope right and then you get into the 80s where it's this this doomsday uh uh you know like nightmare that doesn't end and it, you know the, the you got war games of the day after tomorrow terminator which terminator hadn't I, for some reason I had never occurred to me that it was a cold war film but I suppose it's kind of obvious. It's all about Judgment Day and nuclear bombs and so on.
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes the nuclear threat is there even even absent. Uh, yeah, I mean, Watchmen 2, where the, the nuke is sort of presented as this giant squid monster or whatever, but that's looming over everything. Or um, Top Gun, they never identify the country they keep clashing with as, as the Soviets. And you know, Is that
1: true? Oh, wow,
0: I didn't I, know that. I think. It's, I didn't rewatch it for this. I, oh, okay. I think they leave it <laughs> ambiguous whether they're supposed to be Soviets or koreans or i mean they're, I they're flying migs and i think it's strongly implied that it's it's an eastern bloc country but but the point is yeah the 80s there's there's this nuclear threat looming over everything sometimes it's the russians sometimes well in, in terminator actually it is the russians it's uh, what skynet i think does is it like tricks the computers and in, in both sides into yeah firing on each other
1: it was a nuclear war a few years from now, all this—this this whole place, everything—it's gone. Just gone. The survivors here, there. Nobody even knew who started it. It was the machines, Sarah
0: so so yeah so so that's really in the background of everything
1: but then but then as you move toward the end of the cold war it almost comes i mean you didn't actually put you didn't put in two of my favorite i know you were pressed for space and all that but you didn't put in red heat or the experts americans here in the most secret kgb complex in the world
0: in the heart of Russia.
1: Beyond the doors of this classroom, there is an exact replica of a town in the United States.
0: Two Americans have been abducted.
1: I'm going to bring
0: in some experts on American culture and give this town the facelift it needs. Two Americans who have no idea
1: What are we doing in Pwolly and the Beeves bedroom?
0: that they're not in America.
1: I just got off a plane from New York, where it's almost 1990. Here, it's the 1950s. We're going to Now, two, three, two, we're going to transform this nightmare.
0: They're going to show the Russians What's hip? Blood. AB positive. What's hot? What's your name? Bonnie and yours. I forgot. And what's happening? The key to modern America is Japanese products. Steady's. TZ's. Compact Dicks. They wanted authorities on American culture. Ah! Instead, ah! they got the experts.
1: And then, of course, the... They like fall in love with two local women. The whole town revolts. They escape from the Soviet Union, like with the entire town, to like the West or whatever. But it's an amazing
0: movie. Oh, I desperately want to see this, and and it feels very '80s, very consistent with what I said about '80s portrayals here. In in that everyone everyone wants to leave, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, everyone wants to leave, and but and and deep down, you know, they're like decent people right is, is, is often the kind of like the experts that's certainly the th- that's certainly the premise spies like us i think that's also i'm not sure when that came out but that must also be a late 80s movie every minute you don't tell us why you're here i cut off a finger mine or yours yours damn
0: <laughs> why are you still hitting me he's gonna cut my fingers off you have 30 seconds you're not gonna start humming the theme to jeopardy are you we start with the little one all right,
1: all right. I'm an American agent. And? And uh, and and uh, they they sent me here to, to to assassinate your premier. I knew it. Pay up, comrade. Let's cut his fingers off anyway. No. Let's take him back to headquarters in Moscow. Good move. Good move. Headquarters. Red Heat is all about is a buddy cop thing, in Schwarzenegger, even though he's like. Obviously not Russian. He's like presented as an honest fellow. That one's actually funny because it's somewhat similar to to Rocky IV, where the American is kind of he's not he's not it's it's Jim Belushi, isn't it? And he's by no means like you know a a lumberjack or something, but he's kind of like grizzly and unkempt and sort of, I don't know, like, uh, natural, very natural. Whereas Schwarzenegger is this chiseled by the book, kind of like (laughs) a very official person. And so there's this like, it's, you know, it's like a standard buddy cop movie where like the, their personalities clash, but the presentation is well maintained Soviet person and this back to nature American and you know they they get into misadventures and so on. If you got such a fucking paradise over there, how come you're up the same creek as we are with heroin
0: and cocaine? Chinese find way. Right after revolution. They line up all drug dealers, all drug addicts, take them to Public Square, and shoot them in back of head. Eh, yeah, never work here. Fucking politicians wouldn't go for it. Shoot them first. Right. Well, and I and I traced a lot of this to the um, the Olympics in 1980. That was uh, back when they had uh, the summer and winter Olympics in the same year, and and so you had the Miracle on Ice that year, where the Americans are the underdogs, and you have the all these Eastern Bloc teams that were suspected of doping in the summer Olympics, and and so that I feel like both of those kind of hung over this image of the decade of, of the the Russians as as these kind of, I mean, the, the thing about they're not just cheaters, but there's something kind of dehumanizing about it, right? Like they're they're uh, they're turning themselves into like mutants or cyborgs or something. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. There's this, there's actually a scene in uh, Rocky 4 where they show him, they show Ivan Drago punching like some kind of sensor or something like that that's supposed to measure the PSI of his like punch or something. And apparently, I don't know if this is true, I'll have to look this up, but I'm I'm definitely certain that I read that the the rec- recorded psi of his like you know uppercut is greater than a shotgun or something like that. <laughs> you can do it, so,
0: and you the real champion.
1: What's the stretcher? Somebody sent man. Man. A gone. for a man. For sake! What started out as a joke has turned out to be a disaster. He appears to be in very serious condition. The man alive. dying.
0: You can make this one.
1: If he dies, if he dies. <laughs> And now, Apollo Creed, they're getting, he's getting, there's a sequel to the follow-up one about his son, and and now, I forget his, I forget his son's name, but Apollo Creed's son is going to fight Yvonne Drago Jr. in, you know, a a fight. (laughs) Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago, who infamously killed Apollo Creed, appeared
0: today to issue a challenge to Adonis Creed. Don't do this.
1: I ain't got a choice.
0: That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands.
1: And so, I don't know how to what degree that'll bring in Russia as a sort of character. Although I do think in the trailer there are scenes of Ivan Drago training in the snow and so on. So maybe they've even like shed the doping stuff, and now Ivan Drago is just going to be, you know, equally angry and and in the forest. I'm not sure. I I hope they cast a Russian this time. I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, they're definitely keeping. what is it? Dolph Lundgren as he has to—he's reprising his role. Certainly. Oh, oh he's still around. He's—he looks pretty good, actually. I mean, he looks he's still—he looks like he's been, you know, like he's taken many axe blows to the face, but he's like—he looks very strong and and still Ivan Drago-like. Is what I mean. Oh,
0: excellent. <laughs> I really liked Creed. That was a good movie. But, yeah, like an well, actual the, good movie. I
1: don't know if I don't, I'm not sure who's directing the follow-up, but uh, not Ryan Coogler. No, I don't think so. But uh, all the actors are coming back. So yeah, so it's just very interesting. I thought the way that the I have a, actually. I listed all the movies that you put in your article, and I added in a few that that came to mind. the The, the two that you left out in the twenty first century, I was curious if you intentionally did this or if it just didn't fit. But the two Jack Ryan movies, The Sum of All Fears and then Shadow Recruit. Oh no, I, I I should have put those in. Because there's two. It was it was two thousand two and twenty fourteen. I, I
0: also just realized this morning that I missed Crimson Tide. In, uh, oh yeah, I guess that's that's yeah.
1: a is that because the premise is that some breakaway trash canist whatever thing has nukes and it's going to fire them or something or what's something like that
0: there's trouble in russia so they called us and we're going over there and bringing the most lethal killing machine ever devised
1: the last time we hit this state of emergency was 32 and a half years ago during the cuban missile crisis so this is what it's all about gentlemen it's what we train for what we've always known Bravo, Echo, Echo, Charlie,
0: Alpha becomes what we've always feared. Telling this to the captain, Russian rebels have threatened to launch against our country and are fueling right now. This is not a drill. God help you if you're wrong. If I'm wrong, then we're at war. God help us all. And, you know, to be clear, I I haven't. I definitely have not seen every movie ever made about Russia. But I, I like to believe that, I mean, I, I hope it is true that um, the tropes I observed in the movies I did talk about are present in, in others, including ones I haven't heard of as well. And, and they really are true. I mean, I kind of went with the ones that I feel I hear get referenced the most. I mean, Rocky Four in particular, I feel, is just such a generational touchstone for how, how people imagine the Soviet Union and then yeah, I mean when I you said trash I mean when when I got into the 90s uh and you know when I was sort of first conscious of all this stuff I, that was kind of the image not just of Russia but of the whole region as being these these kind of ir, irradiated mafia run full of drugs and prostitutes just totally dysfunctional countries all of which was supposed to be kind of funny, you know, we were kind of laughing at the defeated enemy and that image has really gone away i think in the last in the last not even decade i think we it's been replaced with a more powerful and much richer russia kind of centered around the persona of vladimir putin
1: do you think that a movie like borat would not do as well today because americans would or is the fact that he's from Kazakhstan and not from Russia, does that sort of make it okay? Or if if he were, if he were claiming to be Russian, would people be like, well, you're not Russian. Russians are scary and impressive. I think Kazakhstan, it
0: might work because I'm still passes. Yeah. That. Because Americans know nothing about Kazakhstan. And of course, yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, or even if they, maybe if he said he was from some provincial part of Russia, if he said he was from the Caucasus or something that. That might well, that would, be more, that would be more believable based on his appearance, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, it would. Um, and I actually, I, I think he got the idea traveling in Ostrakhan, so not quite the Caucasus, but southern Russia. Right, right. And, and he met someone there. I mean, I should say that movie came out uh, when I was living in Moscow over a decade ago, and um, I watched it on bootleg DVD, and my roommate and I were obsessed with it. You know, that stereotype... Like all stereotypes, it wasn't completely false. I mean, I was teaching English at the time, and I had students who would say comically bigoted things that, with that same kind of cheery affect as Borat. And I would go home and tell these stories to my roommate, and we would just laugh about them, like stuff I won't repeat on this podcast. And And actually, one thing I get into a little bit, sort of in the Putin era, and one thing I certainly found to be true when I was in Russia is that there's kind of a feedback loop that goes on here. I mean, Russians are not, like, unaware of uh, of these stereotypes at all. In fact, uh, the impression I usually got is that they think that Americans think about them all the time, more, more than I think we actually do, at least until recently, and that Russians are, are very preoccupied with all the negative stereotypes that Americans have about them, but at the same time are fluent in them and think they're kind of funny... And uh, and will sometimes deliberately play into them, like like Russians have, just regular millennial Russians in Moscow have just like made all kinds of espionage jokes to me before, and so have Russian Americans here in the U.S. You know, because they they know that that's kind of what's expected.
1: How much do you think Americans actually care about Russia now? Because it is certainly talked about a lot, although often it seems like it's just shorthand to make observations about what we think about ourselves and even Borat. I mean, the scenes where they're in the village or whatever, certainly just sort of standard, I don't know, making fun of poor people or, or, you know, or religious people or whatever, just sort of that kind of fair comedy, which, you know, depending on
0: actually, do you know that those village scenes in the movie, I think they were filmed in a Romanian, um, Roma village and, and people there felt, very pissed off and exploited by it. Yeah,
1: I um, I do know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't, I mean, the people don't look anything like they're, they're Kazakhs, so they certainly no, of wasn't course. filmed in Kazakhstan. But
0: uh, <laughs> but then the rest Actually, of the... Actually, you, you asked if Borat would work today, and although I am a big fan of Borat, I, I have to say the kind of ironic on-PC humor that he's dabbling in, to make a point, obviously, but I'm, I'm not sure how well it would play today. I mean, people seem to like the new series, but... The
1: Showtime series?
0: Yeah, where he's... It didn't get after...
1: renewed, though, so I guess that's oh, no. it
0: yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess when I say people, I mean like left Twitter. What do I know? About uh-huh. Right. Right. But uh, <laughs> how much do Americans actually think about Russia? Like Russia, the country, Russia, the people? Very little, I would say, uh, beyond these few broad stereotypes. I mean, I forget who I was saying this with, but it sometimes feels like Putin is the only person in the country, even to hear you know, quote unquote experts in DC talk about Russia, it sometimes feels that way, or, you know, Putin, Hodorkovsky and maybe a a couple other, you know, pussy riot. But you know, I would say the texture of actual life in the country is is something and I think there are multiple reasons for that. One is one is that Russia's still not that easy to travel in, you know, with the visa requirements and everything and just various hassles. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive and cumbersome and you know, for a country that, at least in its major cities, I think can also be richly rewarding to travel in, I don't think it has ever gotten the tourist volume that it could from Americans in particular. And so it's seen as a kind of grim place, again, in ways that aren't entirely unfair, but, you know, are are limited. And, you know, likewise, you don't, I think, get as much, um, like student exchange, as as you might for such a large economy, and actually the other thing which I I sort of allude to in the piece is that so much of what Americans think about Russia is shaped by refugees and dissidents coming here, right? And they and they always you know from the whites a century ago to you know the Jews who came to Brighton Beach in the 70s and in the 90s, and you know and I know a lot of people of that rough background. A lot grew up in the D.C. area with me people are proud of their culture in various ways, but uh, and actually some of the first positive stereotypes I ever... Or not even stereotypes, just some of my first kind of exposure to everyday Soviet culture came from a a high school girlfriend and her family, because that's when I was introduced to things like The Irony of Fate or Chiburashka or just the kind of, like, you know, pop music of the 70s or whatever, just just stuff that like tells you like oh this is like a regular country people lived in too but even then it was like it was a country they fled and it was a country they fled because of official anti-semitism and discrimination and just better opportunities here and you know, I, I mentioned um, Keith Gessen's new novel, *A Terrible Country*, and this and that title really says it all. I think. I mean, that is how I've heard Russian Americans talk about Russia. More often than not, is not a place you would want to visit. Not a place you'd ever want to go back to. You know, and so I think all of that affects even how relatively well-informed people think about Russia.
1: One of the things you said about Keith Gesson's book in in your article for Coda was that you I mean you you praise the book for depicting Russia and the United States as places that really aren't so different anymore and you you like the fact that the book focuses instead of uh, instead of differences it focuses on on the globalized oligarchy that you say commodifies and destroys everything human and meaningful. And I'm wondering uh, when I read that, I wondered: Do you do you think that that Russia and the in the U.S. really are that similar in terms of ordinary lived experiences, or is it just is that just applied to people in New York and Moscow that they essentially live the same kind of metropolitan life, or is it deeper than that? And if it is, should Hollywood? dump its spy thrillers and its jack ryan reboots and should it should it make movies about, you know, global oligarchs and so on.
0: Well, to the last question, yes, obviously. That would be awesome. But um <laughs> but I should bring a nuance into what Keith says because I think in one important respect um he does and I don't want to Have you read the book? I've, I've I've started. I haven't finished it. I really like it and I don't want to spoil it for you or anyone else. But but I but speaking very broadly, I would say that Another theme he deals with that I didn't mention in the article is that um, there is a certain privilege in being an American. And, you know, the, the hero of this novel is, like Keith Gesson himself, a Russian-born and came here—came to the U.S. as a, a child and is now back there in his 20s. Uh, so he's an expat, but he's also a kind of prodigal son. And I will say the fact that he doesn't have to be there, that he could leave at any time— that there are opportunities for him in America that he wouldn't have in Russia is uh, certainly an important theme and plot point, and as you'll see. So, no, they're not exactly the same. But that's not to say there isn't some degree of convergence going on. I mean, I've seen many times how Russia Twitter and people like my friend, I think you know her too, Hannah Gase, you know, will get very annoyed at the deployment of, of Soviet imagery on magazine covers and on MSNBC and stuff because Russia's not communist and that's definitely true. But what is Russia if it's not communist? And as I've written in a number of different places, it's it's a reactionary oligarchy with a kind of, you know, postmodern ideology that kind of I mean, one reason that those communist images, and for that matter, St. Basil's Cathedral or the Kremlin, or sometimes one is confused for the other, one reason those don't bother me that much is that I kind of feel like Putin's Russia actually has crafted a, a ruling ideology and a national identity out of the kind of free blending of these images. So it'll be Tsarist it'll be imagery one minute, or orthodox stuff, then it'll be Soviet stuff, then it'll be you know stuff about how ritzy and and modern Russia is now. I'm sure you remember the opening ceremonies of the Sochi Olympics. thing where Russian history seamlessly moves from from the Tsars and the bal- ballerinas and so on to like this kind of red very avant-garde imagery but but I think s- like explicitly Soviet stuff was removed from it. I might be misremembering this but like there's... Well they, they removed you know crimes against humanity they removed the crimes against humanity the the purges and all that, but I think they also removed the hammer and sickle, but they kept like the red and the aesthetic and also World War II heroism, which is kind of uh inseparable from from Stalin and the soviet union so so they've they've in their search for a usable past they've kind of stripped all of these things of their specific meaning, and it's all just one glorious country culminating in Putin. And honestly, it's not that different from the various, you know, from Americans using a combination of hammers and sickles and St. Basil's to kind of evoke Putin's Russia now. Like, these are just kind of de-ideologized, purely aesthetic symbols of of Russia and, you know, throw in some bears and, and whatever. And, you know, in terms of how Russia and America are converging, I mean, I think We you know, this goes beyond just those two countries, but we have a global economic system and kind of political ideology undergirding it, which we'll just call neoliberalism here. And Russia was very much inaugurated into it in the 90s by the U.S. And what Keith gets and what I strongly agree with is that going to Russia, but for that matter, going to I'm sure Brazil or China or India or any number of other major countries, you know, in the last uh, 20 years, what you see is the kind of real face of the global economy, right? So, on the one hand, extreme wealth, and on the other hand, extreme poverty, and, you know, pollution, and corruption, and, and military police stepping in to quash anything resembling real democracy. And, in you know, I'm— I've addressed this in, in all sorts of different writing contexts. Uh, you can kind of see it in some of Bernie Sanders' recent foreign policy rhetoric, too. That there's a, there's what I hope is a growing recognition that, that these struggles are all kind of similar, and that when you see, uh, you know, half a million generally well-educated people with smartphones fill the major square of a major city in any of these countries, in Istanbul or Hong Kong or wherever their demands are often broadly the same, an end to corruption, elections that actually matter, you know, something like a future for people our age. I, I think you've seen a globalization of that kind of protest, although I'd be hard-pressed to say it's really been successful anywhere. So, yeah, that's, sorry, that's a long-winded answer, but you see what I'm saying?
1: So does that does that mean that... Because on one hand, I, I I wonder how much of this, I mean, not to sound dismissive, but like how much of what you're saying is sort of... Uh, standard sort of I don't know leftist interpretations of the world system and so on, and how much of it is an analysis of say of like because there's there's such a thing as as a, a leftist interpretation of Russia and a leftist interpretation of you know politics and life in the United States, and then there's also and then at the same time it's difficult for me sometimes, which I'm sympathetic to those interpretations by the way, but it's then it's hard to reconcile that with with some of the evidence or some of the, just studying Russia as close as I do, it's hard to reconcile it with the sort of the blatant authoritarianism of, of modern day Russia. Right. I mean, that, 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 uh, for instance, access to the ballot is, is completely controlled essentially. I mean, it's like you, you can't get a real opposition candidate on a ballot except in extraordinary circumstances. And the United States, there are incredible barriers in electoral democracy and so on but it's still not quite
0: it's not the level so so sure right sure sure well i i think it is i think it is hyperbolic to say that um not to say i've never engaged in such hyperbole but to say that that we have arrived in you know the same condition as russia i mean we're a much more developed country we're also and i think this is a really important distinction although sometimes it leads me to think ukraine might actually be the better analogy which is kind of a hot take to to the United States right now. I mean, what what I think is distinctive about the United States versus Russia is that this is an extremely diverse country. And yeah, Russia's diverse too, but there's one ethnicity that accounts for, I think, what, 80% of the population at least. Um, And uh, you can't really say that's true of the United States. I mean, even if you were just talking about white people, that there's not one clear, you know, the the diversity of religion and regional identity and ancestry and so on is, is immense just, just among white America. And, you know, there's never been anything like the civil rights movement in Russia either. And so I think... What you ha- and and you and the U.S. whatever else it is has a truly federal system, you know, where states exercise a, a lot of real power and have real local governments. Which, obviously, in Russia, there, you know, Putin did away with that a long time ago.
1: Right. And so, if if realities are so different, then shouldn't like if if
0: if this well, so I think what it, what it means is that the U.S. is truly polarized. There, the, the U.S. really is polarized between two opposed blocks. And I don't buy into the left analysis, and I never have, that says that the two parties are the same. Um, There are certainly overarching, there are limitations to where the two parties will go and shared corporate donors, but it's wrong to say that they're the same or represent the same people or want the same policy outcomes. And so I think the fact that in the U.S. you do have kind of mutually opposed, mobilized blocks of the population that exist in alternate realities. And I think, and I'm sure you think, too, that one of those realities is more more accurate than the other one by a lot. But but I think that is a meaningful difference in, in what kind of country we are. That said, I've often tried to explain Putin's Russia to people who've never been there as like, uh, I mean, I would say this like a decade ago. I would say, imagine if George Bush was president... And the only channels on TV were were variations of Fox News. And also 90% of people were Fox News watchers. And then, you know, you had like an NPR and you had kind of some blogs and stuff like that, but they, they represented such a tiny part of the population that they were almost kept around to make fun of, um, unless they actually uncovered serious corruption, in which case they might get murdered in an alley. And that, So it was, it was a kind of nightmare extreme version of, of the right wing of American politics was kind of how I cast it.
1: One, one other question I had that I wanted to make sure I asked was uh, you cited the death of Stalin as, like a, as a rare recent example of great cinema about Russia. And you praise its attention to historical detail. You say it's a strangely moving film. And I thought this was interesting because it's, it's one of the few modern movies, in fact, alongside Borat, It's one of the few honor movies that's been banned in Russia or didn't get a license to be, you know, put into theaters because that's that's how they ban movies there. The Ministry of Culture just doesn't grant a license to have it distributed to theaters. And so then the theaters, there's some like bureaucratic um, purgatory here, if I'm not mistaken, because I don't know if there's necessarily a law that says you have to have a license to show the movie but at any rate, the Ministry of Culture can fine you if you don't if you show a movie without a license, and that's what happened with the one theater in Moscow that tried to show it for a
0: day or whatever. But I'm sure, meanwhile, the DVDs of it must be all over the place. And oh, must, I can yeah. Must be openly sold in metro kiosks and stuff, and probably I mean, yeah. yeah. But but
1: I guess what I was curious about was was um if 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 the death of Stalin aspects of it, its attention to detail and its its willingness to sort of um. Well, I, 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 what you said—that the, the, is, is it? It's attention to detail. The fact that it is moving, I guess, is how you would is how you put it. And and I don't know if you would say that it gets to the heart of Russia or takes Russia as a sort of serious subject. But whatever it does that you liked the russians didn't like and they they said that it was offensive it mocked the soviet past and that's kind of like okay whatever sure they don't they don't like you mocking the second world war but they also said that it mocked the victims of stalinism and i, I assume they they have in mind the scenes where civilians and prisoners are executed and it's you know supposed to be funny live Stalin. Stalin's dead. Malenkov's in charge. Stop shooting. Long live Malenkov. I
0: must get defensive immediately. Orders of Comrade Beria. We're moving out. Let's go. Come on. So I did, I did not take those scenes as funny. I thought, I, I thought there was a lot of humor in the movie, obviously. It is a comedy, but the, the humor is largely in the kind of petty egos of um, the Stalinist elite uh, and their little feuds with each other and how these are all just kind of ridiculous characters like his son is a is is a laughingstock but when it came to people being executed in siberian camps or the secret police knocking on the doors i thought that stuff was played pretty straight and even if there was maybe a humorous element in like everyone in the theater at the beginning you know being scared for their lives i i thought the darkness was very present it, it's not it's not a light movie And I I would say dark comedy is the appropriate term for it. Now, the sensibility of that, I can see why it wouldn't fly. And I can also—my understanding is that the older generations that are still alive in Russia, and maybe some younger people, too, but certainly the older generations have a kind of a very complicated relationship with Stalin because on the one hand, he—you know, everyone had their family hurt in some way by him. But on the other hand, there's this World War II cult, and— and this kind of nostalgia for what's probably inaccurately remembered as a simpler time. Uh, and so I can see how making Stalin's death a big joke would not play well. I could see how political satire of Russia in, in general would not play well. I have no idea how, you know, young educated people in Russia thought of that movie. Maybe you do.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure to be honest. I haven't, I haven't read the definitive you know, summary of the, the Musk and Teddy so like uh sense sense of the film. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's actually I, I don't know how well it's been uh, widely been it's been watched to be honest. I guess people who speak English probably downloaded it. I don't know what the quality of the dub version is, which you know what most people be would be watching if they saw it. So I don't I'm not sure to be honest. That's an interesting question.
0: Well, I'll tell you one thing that did inform and I think she's tweeted about this. One thing that did inform my uh my interpretation of it was I saw this movie with um my friends, Tom Tomorrow, the cartoonist who has a kind of layman's passion for Soviet kitsch, and the journalist, uh, Natalia Antonova, um, who I guess is at Voice of America now. No, she's at um, Bellingcat now. Oh, she's she, at she's, she's, She moves fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, she was at neither when this was happening. She was still, she was still living in New York. But um, we saw it together, and Natalia, uh, I, I apologize to her on podcast if I'm getting this wrong, but I believe her grandfather uh, suffered directly under Stalin, and it, it definitely affected her family directly. Uh, and she comes from a Soviet military family. And she found the movie very moving. She, I think, cried during it. The fact that it was an Ianucci comedy did not prevent her from treating it as a kind of somber reflection on what Stalinism was. And uh, I was impressed by how much kind of horror he was willing to put into a movie of this type because he he could have made the whole thing entirely farcical yeah and slapstick so so in
1: the in the end of your piece you say that you kind of anticipate hackers and so on becoming the latest craze in depictions of russia and hollywood films i wonder like if i asked you to guess like what the next big russia movie will be I don't let's just uh, anything that's in production now that one could know about let's just assume that's not what the question's about I'm, i'd lo- I'd love to hear your sort of pitch for and and I want you to sort of dig deep into like the worst of the worst that you think Hollywood would love. We already know that what you would love to see is you know a, a film version of a terrible country or something like that. but what if you had to like what if you were going to pitch the thing if you needed a quick buck and you were going to pitch the thing that you thought would definitely appeal the widest in in l a wh- what do you think the plot the general plot would be?
0: Well, first and foremost, I assume that we're going to at some point get a kind of game-change HBO-style reenactment of um, of the 2016 election. Sure. With, you Sounds, know, yeah. mm-hmm. Alec Baldwin or whoever playing Trump. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and so, you know, in that, I, I, I hope there'll be some scenes of, like, you know, kind of sh- shadily lit um, interior of the Internet Research Agency and a bunch of teen Russian hackers, you know, Uh, tweeting at at, uh, Joan Walsh or whoever I mean I think that would be pretty funny but I don't know I I imagine it will be something more like I mean it could be the next Bond movie it could be a kind of Red Sparrow type thriller except that well actually so in in GoldenEye there is a hacker character as I recall
1: oh yeah he sends the spike spike them come on boys just hang up no way I spiked them all right what's the password i'm not going to tell you okay let me guess it's not in front of me Mm -mm. you sit on it but you can't take it with you my program seizes the phone line of whoever's
0: tracing me and jams their modem so they can't hang up now the hunted becomes the hunter and this is like a very 90... I mean, that was during an era, actually, when Hollywood was churning out all these movies like The Net and Hackers, uh, you know, that had this... Sneakers? Uh, you know, had this, I don't know if you saw sneakers. sneakers. Yeah, with this, with this very kind of, like, hand-wavy idea of what the internet actually was. Or, for that matter, Independence Day, which which has that... Sure, yeah, he hacks shit. the
1: aliens, yeah.
0: Yeah, and also, that's a movie in which the Americans uh, come to the rescue of the crummy Soviet military, right? Or post-Soviet. It, well,
1: the, the whole world. The just, whole world. Why,
0: why limit it to the Soviet world? The whole world, <laughs> but, but isn't, one a, isn't the montage, don't we get like a quick look at the Russians, or am I misremembering that?
1: We get, we get a look, if I remember right, we get a look at the Russians, we get a look at the Brits,
0: and maybe the Israelis. Yeah, and then some like African tribesmen who don't have Something like force. that, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I could imagine, uh, I mean, the only problem is, what they did Is kind of boring to show on screen, (laughs) right? Like, I mean, I mean, you could maybe make like a funny movie, like a kind of Wag the Dog type movie about um, Mm, Mm -hmm. about some like the filming of some of these videos that they tried to make go viral on Facebook, you know, to depress black turnout. I mean that that might actually be an entertaining movie, but in terms of like a spy thriller, it's like we want you know we want james bond or whatever and what we're going to get is uh and like nuclear threats and what we're going to get is is twitter bots which is just this inherently trivial thing which which is appropriate because you know it often feels like we live in an inherently trivial time when people ask like do you do you really think you know a bunch of you know uh russian teenagers uh in an internet cafe could could take down the us political system i'm like I don't know, have you seen the U.S. political system re- recently? <laughs> I, I think that's exactly who could take us down. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Where can they read your work?
0: I don't have a personal website. At David Clion, Klion, K L I O N is kind of how people interface with me um, on Twitter. On Twitter, and uh, you know, usually my pinned tweet is whatever the last thing I wrote is. It's it's the Skoda story article right now. Beyond that, I would just say Google me. Yeah, whatever
1: whatever they find, that's 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 the truth. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll stand by
0: most of what I've written. But uh, in the last year, I've had I've had pieces, including pieces about Russia in. Nation, BuzzFeed, The New York Times, The Guardian. So,
1: and you had a pretty controversial review of Michael
0: McFaul's new book out, is that right? Yes, I did. Well, uh, funny thing about that, Michael McFaul blocked me on Twitter months before that came out because uh, I called him a moron because of his cheerleading of serious strikes, which pissed me off. And um, and and he has a rule, as I'm sure you know, as a McFaul watcher, that. Uh, you can criticize him all you want, but if you call him a name um he'll block you, so he blocked me and then, when I wrote this review uh which is a very snarky and and negative review of not so much his book as uh his career um in, in at the end i I said um that you know he has me blocked on Twitter, even though um I still got him to sign a copy of my book, which was true. That was at his debate at Columbia with Stephen Cohen, yeah. Um, quite the battle royale. So anyway, as soon as that review came out, and I guess people started promoting it, and he must obsessively name search, he unblocked me. Um, and he still has me unblocked. So uh, I guess he... does. He Has he interacted with you at all? Um, he acknowledged that the piece existed. He did not a- acknowledge... Um, reading the whole thing and said he wasn't sure he wanted to because it might like upset him. Yeah,
1: understandable.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh no, I mean I I I don't think I'm admitting too much to say I have back channels with multiple friends, some of whom you probably know, uh where we just on a near daily basis examine McFalls weirdest tweets um and try to and try to make sense of how a, how a such a silly man can be one of the leading experts and diplomats in U.S.-Russian relations.
1: That's my interview with David Cleon, a writer in Brooklyn whose work has appeared in The Nation, The New York Times, The Guardian, BuzzFeed, Baffler, many other publications. As he said, you can follow him on Twitter and check out his new article, Russia Hollywood's Mirror. Check the description of this podcast episode for hyperlinks. This podcast, by the way, is supported by listeners like you through patreon.com backslash Rothrock. No pledge is too large or too small. Thank you to everyone already contributing. And as always, thanks for listening. Until next time. <speaking in Spanish> Погадать на короля, ой-ля-ля,
0: ой-ля-ля, погода на короля, ой-ля-я, ой-ля-ля,
1: ой-ля-ля. завтра дальняя дорога, выпадает к королю, у него денежонок много, а я денежки люблю, ой-ой-ля, ой-ля-ля. ой-ля-ля.